so great to so great to be here with you this morning, especially this eight o'clock service. Um, in the Western Church calendar, today is the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany, and starting with Ash Wednesday, we heard about the announcement. So that's March six. Now we will enter the period of Lent. As many of you know, Lent is a 40-day period uh, leading to the Easter Sunday for Christians to reflect upon and meditate the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I say the passion of Christ, I mean the sufferings of Christ, including his death, not enthusiastic feelings or desires of Christ. However, these two meanings of the word passion are closely related to each other, as in Greek and Latin. Our passion for Christ, that is our intense desires and love for Christ, is the foundation of our uh, passion for Christ. Uh, what did I just say? Yes, our passion for Christ, our intense and desire for Christ comes from how well and how deeply we appreciate and understand the passion, the sufferings of Christ. Therefore, the passion of Christ is the foundation for our passion for Christ. Pun fully intended here. So today's passage, Mark 14, 1 through 11, is the start of the passion narrative in the Gospel of Mark. So those are chapters 14 and 15. The passion narrative presents the escalating confrontation between Jesus and the Jerusalem religious hierarchy, which climaxes in the rejected and executed king of the Jews, the Christ, the Messiah. At the beginning of that ominous trajectory, we encounter one of the most beautiful and memorable love stories in all four Gospels, the story of an anonymous woman anointing Jesus. As we read the story, I want to suggest that if you are able, you read the Bible from your pews because it's easier to actually see the structure of the story there. So please pay attention when we read the story's context, a contrast between the women's action and people's reaction, and Jesus' response to both of them as we read together. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for a, an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. So as you see, this account of anointing at Bethany is located in the very context of opposition, conspiracy, and impending sufferings and death of Jesus. Jesus already had negative encounters with the chief priests and the scribes in chapter 11. There, when Jesus cleared the temple and condemned the money changers and merchants of making the temple a den of robbers, these Jerusalem religious authorities began looking for a way to kill him already then. And it was the same chief priests and the scribes who questioned the authority of Jesus later in that chapter. Now we should note the irony of the timing in our passage. The Passover, the most important Jewish festival, which marked the original exodus from Egypt and the establishment of Israel as a covenant people of God, is coming only two days away. Jesus came to Jerusalem in time for the Passover to announce the kingdom of God and to call Israel to repentance. Through the passion of Jesus, the Passover lamb, there will be a new Passover, a new exodus, and a new covenant for the new people of God. Yet, yet, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem, at the very timing of Passover, they were again plotting to kill Jesus by looking for a way to arrest him, verse 1. And we now see Judas conspiring with them by looking for an opportunity to betray him, verse 11. So we see that parallelism right there in verse 1 and 11. So in contrast, however, an unnamed woman whose story sandwiched right in the middle of that enmity and betrayal is boldly expressing her self-offering love for Jesus by anointing his head with her costly ointment. The love shown at Bethany contrasts the hatred at Jerusalem and simultaneously the hatred at Jerusalem highlights the love demonstrated at Bethany to the fullest extent. So in this passage, I want to focus on the acts and words of four characters. First, first of all, the women and people, Jesus and Judas. So first, the women's action, which is full of surprises and audacity. 
In order to express her love to Jesus, she completely went out of her way and took a risk of being misunderstood. The scene is in Bethany, located just one and a half miles east of Jerusalem, at the home of Simon Leper. We don't know anything about Simon. Uh, Perhaps he's a former leper healed by Jesus. As Jesus was sitting and eating at the table with the disciples and perhaps other guests, this woman came in. According to the Jewish custom, women did not ordinarily enter a formal dinner where men were eating except to serve them. This woman was neither supposed nor expected to interrupt the dining at all. So this woman's entrance itself would have raised at least some eyebrows about her failure to observe the social custom. However, more than her presence at the table, what she did and how she did were even more amazing and to some annoying and problematic. She broke an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment, and poured the perfume on her Jesus' head. The ointment, or the perfume, used here is described as made from nard. Nard was very, expl- uh, very expensive fragrant oil extracted from an exotic plant primarily found in India. So it's done very expensive import. In order to preserve the aroma, it was sealed in an alabaster jar, which was a flask with a long neck and no handle. Now, how expensive was this? According to her critics in verse 5, the value of this perfume exceeded 300 denarii. One denarius was a day's wage for a common labor, so it was worth more than a year's wage. What would be today's equivalent? Now, say a laborer earns $100 a day. Typically, they worked for six days except Sabbath. So $100 times six times four, so that will be $2,400 a month. Then a year's wage would be $28,800, somewhere around there. Now, in our context, that amount would be sort of a little more than our low-income level scale for a single person. So this ointment belonged to the women was worth at least, at least 28000 and more. Some scholars suggest this perfume might have been a family heirloom that was passed on from one generation to another, from mother to daughter. Thus, it was something that could be be sold in times of financial need, something that could give her a sense of security and safety, and something so dear, so precious, and so valuable to the women. In anointing Jesus, she did not just open the seal of the jar, but actually broke it and poured all of his contents on Jesus without sparing any. Therefore, it's not just Jesus' head, but also his body was drenched in fragrant oil, as verse 8 says. 
This woman broke what might have been the most valuable thing to her and lavished it on Jesus. And by doing so, she parted with her savings. Her financial security is perhaps gone. And we might as well imagine that there is no contingency plan on her part. But it was precisely this aspect of her uncalculating, unreserved generosity that revealed the extent of her love for Jesus. Indeed, she gave her very best to the Lord. Second, let's look at the people's reaction. This anointing was indeed costly to the women, but it seems it was also costly to the people around. So much so that it aroused not only a surprise response, but also a harsh rebuke mentioned in verses 4 and 5. But some of you were, some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. Those present were angry at this apparent display of extravagance. Undoubtedly, those who were angry were un uh, undoubtedly included Jesus' disciples. A parallel version in Matthew's gospel specifically identifies them as such. And Jesus' words in verses 6 to 9 are certainly directed to them. Why were they angry? Why did they scold her? It seems that the objection was not to the act as such, because anointing the head of an honored guest was customary in Jewish culture. But the objection comes, uh, it, the objection seems to have been its extravagance, its wastefulness, because the women's act went far beyond the normal courtesy. Why this waste, they said. To the disciples, what she did appeared wasteful, unreasonable, unwise, reckless, and even theatrical. The enormous value of the anointment, enormous value of the ointment prevented them from appreciating the lavishness of the women's gift. And they harshly criticized her. Here, what they said about the value of the perfume and the need of the poor was true. In fact, it was quite natural for them to think in terms of the provision for the poor because it was customary at the Passover time to remember the poor with gifts. It was an essential part of Jewish piety, along with prayer and fasting. So they were reasonable and practically minded and even pious. Nonetheless, being so quick to condemn the wastefulness of the woman's act, they gravely missed the core of what she was doing. Third, how about Jesus' response then? In response to the critics' hasty judgment, Jesus was quick to defend the woman 
and it's his defense that set her act in perspective. Jesus saw how troubled she was. She may have wondered whether, after all, she may she had made a foolish mistake, and whether, after all, it was really worth it. Maybe she should have not gone out of her way, but just remained silent, doing nothing. Why did she make such a scene in the presence of those people, those men? But Jesus looks not at the human wisdom of our acts, but at the wholehearted love for him, which prompts those acts. Jesus looks for uncalculating, unrestrained devotion to himself rather than smart wisdom and reasonable judgment in giving. If love is true love, there must always be a certain extravagance to it, isn't it? You cannot balance your love in the same way as you do your checkbook. There is certain recklessness in love which refuses to count the profit or loss, the more or less. The disciples' criticism came from doing their own math, and their criticism implied that Jesus was not worth that expensive ointment more than 300 denarii. But the women did her math too, it seems, well before she came in with a costly perfume. According to her math, however, Jesus was worth that extravagant perfume, her very best act. So indeed, without a single word spoken, the woman's heart was clearly communicated to Jesus. Thus, Jesus declares in verse 6, she performed a good service to me. In Greek, it literally says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. The women recognized that the needs of Jesus, whom people didn't always have, took a priority over the obligation to help the poor who would always be with them. She had her priorities straight. Look at verse 7, however. The contrast here is not between Jesus and the poor. They are not pitted against each other. But the contrast here is between always and not always. The opportunity to benefit the poor continues to offer itself. But the situation in which a profound expression of love could be extended to Jesus was confined to that particular fleeting moment. Jesus recognized in the extravagance of her gift a beautiful expression of love, which possessed a deeper significance and meaning than she could have possibly understood. He declared that the woman's gift was prophetic and appropriate, especially in light of the approaching hour of his death. Jesus, therefore, not only validated her act, but also accepted and appreciated the very extent of her love. In verse 8, he says, she has done what she could, meaning that whatever she was able to do, she did. Remember the widow's might in chapter 12. Jesus acknowledged that the women who anointed him had gone to the very limits of her resources. 
in her heart devotion, and even in finance. She performed the best service, the only service within her power and capacity. Jesus didn't commend her for practical wisdom, but commended her for her wasteful love for him. Surely, as verse 9 says, the women's act would be remembered as part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' wasteful love. In this light, finally, what Judas did in the next two verses, 10 and 11, is even more poignant. And the contrast with the women's act is even more striking. Judas was there at Bethany and saw her extravagant anointing. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, the disciple who rebuked the women is identified as Judas Iscariot. When Judas realized that Jesus keeps talking about his death and that Jesus' kingdom will not profit him materially and politically, Judas chooses to get what he still can from his investment in Jesus. So what does he do? He joins a conspiracy against his master and his promise to receive money in return. In Matthew's gospel, that amount is 30 silver coins. In the Old Testament, 30 silver coins are the value of a slave accidentally gored to death by a bull. Also, it's the price of a faithful but rejected messianic shepherd in prophet Zechariah. What we see now, so... Judas sells Jesus, his master, and the Messiah for a price of a slave. That's the worth of Jesus from the perspectives of the Jerusalem authorities and Judas. Symbolically and financially, that's cheap money. That's so insignificant compared to the value of the women's perfume. Judas like many of us who profess to be Christians, sought only what he could get out of Jesus. Whereas this nameless woman sought what she could offer to Jesus. Judas' betrayal is cheap in light of the costliness of woman's devotion. And this is the irony. The product of the human wisdom and calculation is cheap and paltry whereas the product of pure dedication and single-minded love to Jesus is costly and extravagant. Ultimately, however, even this woman's wasteful act of anointing was only a dim mirror of what Jesus would do for her. Her expression of love was considered significant Precisely because of the anticipation of his death on the cross. Indeed, just as the woman broke her alabaster jar of expensive ointment, Jesus himself broke his alabaster jar of his very life and poured it upon all of us. The cross of Jesus represents the ultimate extravagance and costliness of God's love. God wasted for us the dearest thing in God's heart, 
God's one and only son, so that through that extravagant, wasteful, prodigal demonstration of God's love, we may have salvation, the eternal life. What a waste. What a foolish act. Or is it really? Apparently, God didn't think so. God didn't think the cross was the empty waste or a foolish act. Contrary to our human calculation and logic, God regarded you and me, every single person in this world, worthy of God's extravagance. No wonder Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18 declared, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to everyone who are being saved, it is the power of God and the very manifestation of God's wisdom and love. Who are we that we deserve this kind of wasteful and extravagant love of God? What have we done to deserve this kind of excessive, lavishing, and prodigal love of God? If, the, if there had not been God's waste of God's love, we would have not been here worshiping God together. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but we need to be reminded of this truth and let this sink deep in our hearts every day. The price tag on our lives is the very life of Jesus. And because of God's extravagance, our lives are priceless. And if, we, if God thought we were worthy of his own son's life, how much more is God worthy of our lives, our hearts and devotion, our very best and our everything? We've seen how each character in the story measures Jesus' worth in the passage. What is Jesus' worth according to you, to your math? If Jesus is truest and highest good in our lives, what in our lives should change? I wonder if some of us, including myself, need to repent before God for being so stingy and calculating about expressing our love and commitment to Christ. What do we find? What do we find so costly in loving Christ, in knowing him, serving him and sharing his prodigal love? What is your alabaster jar that needs to be given up and broken for the sake of Christ? Or perhaps some of us can relate to the women's experience in one way or another. Some of you offered yourselves to serve God in worship team, prayer ministry, children's and youth ministry, small group ministry, food and mercy ministries. Some of you sacrificed your position, leisure, pleasure, and comfort for Christ. You've dedicated your valuable time, energy, and money to build God's kingdom here and overseas. And You've gone out of your way even to be here on Sundays. And some of you have been faithfully serving the poor and the underprivileged and working toward tangible justice and equality in our cities. 
But because of the fear and consciousness of people's judgment, you may be asking the same thing the women might have wondered. Is it really worth it? Have I acted foolishly? We sometimes regret our act of devotion to the Lord because we don't feel safe and secure. In fact, being bounded by our own reason and wisdom, many times we may find ourselves hesitating to offer God what is dear to us. And even when we do, we are not sure whether we acted properly or not. But to all of us, to those of us who have stepped out in faith to act, as to the women, comes the word of comfort and encouragement by Jesus himself. So, brothers and sisters, the woman gave Jesus to the limit of her love and capacity. Will the Lord say of us when we see him face to face, you have done what you could. As we encounter and share the Christ daily, especially in the upcoming season of Lent, we may uh, we may uh, we may we break our alabaster jar, whatever that may be, and continue to reenact the display of our undivided passion for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and His people. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.